Grace be unto you in peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning we consider the word of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter beginning with the third verse as follows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. I bring you the greetings of your Christian brothers and sisters who are the faculty and staff of our Emanuel Lutheran High School, College, and Seminary in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. In the name of our risen and ascended Lord Jesus, dear fellow redeemed, P.T. Barnum is often referred to as the father of the American circus. He had a genius for showmanship. He is reported to have been the first American businessman to make a million dollars in the entertainment industry. It was Barnum who in the mid-1800s introduced an innovation known as the Three Rings Circus. Unlike his competitors in the circus business who had one central ring in which all the performances took place. Barnum thought if one is good, then three must be triply good. So he had performances going on simultaneously in three different rings. He was correct, of course, and his innovation became an immediate hit. Three rings are more effective than one. Our text for today is not about the circus and it's not about entertainment. But it is about something very serious, something that's crucial to each of our lives, and that's our salvation. The reason I bring up the three rings is to give you an image for your mind to focus on and so that, to help you think about this crucial subject. You already know that three rings form one of the most common symbols of the triune God. And you can look at the bulletin cover for this morning to be reminded of that. And the intersection of those three rings reminds us 
of the words of our favorite hymn, one of our favorite hymns that says, Thy ways, O Lord, with wise design are framed upon thy throne above, and every dark and bending line meets in, in the center of thy love. The work of all three persons of the triune God centers on one thing, and that's your salvation. That's what we're going to consider this morning. It may seem like a strange way to put it, but our theme for today is very scriptural. Yours is a three-ring salvation. God the Father chose you, God the Son redeemed you, and God the Holy Spirit sealed you. Lutheran author and commentator Henry Thiessen once said, Among Paul's epistles, there is none more sublime and profound, none greater than Ephesians. When we turn to Ephesians, we pass into the stillness and hush of the sanctuary. Here prevails the atmosphere of repose, of meditation, of worship, and peace. And if the book of Ephesians is the most sublime book of the Bible, then chapter 1 is perhaps the most sublime chapter of the Bible. For when you read through this first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, you get the sense that Paul is simply awestruck at the incredible grace that God shows toward us, his redeemed children in Christ. Paul's eyes are open and he sees the vast riches that are ours in Christ and he wants us to see that, to share that vision as well. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Needless to say, for a preacher, this Bible passage is an embarrassment of riches. A whole series of sermons could be preached on every single verse. For now we're going to simply take in the highlights. You may have already guessed, of course, why this text is a common text for the festival of the church here that we're observing today, the festival of Holy Trinity. Because Paul here touches on the work of all three persons of the triune God. Verses 3 to 6 for the Father, 7 to 12 for the Son, and verses 13 and 14 for the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is, of course, a mystery. Not a mystery in the Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie sense, but a mystery in the biblical sense. In other words, it's a doctrine that's clearly taught in Scripture, but that makes no reasonable sense to our human intellect at all. <clears throat> it's something our human reason is incapable of understanding. For instance, the eternal nature of God is a mystery because none of us with our weak human intellect can understand what eternity is, how God can be without beginning and without end, existing in timelessness. Our mind is too feeble to conceive of that. It's the same thing with the Trinity. We can't understand how God could be three distinct persons with three distinct works to do and at, yet at the same time be only one true God. And yet scripture clearly teaches both those facts. Yours is a three-ring salvation, and we're going to look at the first of those three rings, God the Father. According to our text, God the Father 
elected you and chose you for salvation. Paul says, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Wow, there's another biblical mystery, hard on the heels of the first one. We just touched on the Trinity, and now we're touching on the doctrine of predestination or election. And predestination, by the way, is not the same thing as fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that all future events are set and that a person can't change anything that's going to happen. <clears throat> they say that the nation of Iran is the most dangerous place to drive a car. Why? Because all the drivers there are fatalists. As Shiite Muslims, they believe that all future events, including automobile accidents, are foreordained. So no matter how recklessly you drive, you will never get into an accident if today's not your day for an accident. You'd think that one of the highest driver fatality rates in the world would cause them to re-examine their theology, but apparently not. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't teach fatalism. So then, what is predestination or election? What does that mean exactly? The word choose in our text means to select out of a group. And the word predestined means to decide upon beforehand, to arrange in advance. When you think about it, it's really very astounding what God is telling us in these verses. He says that before the world was even created, before there was sea and earth and light and stars and planets, before that, God chose you to be saved. God selected you out of the masses of people who would be born and set you apart to be one of his dear children. What we can't understand is why. That's what makes this a mystery. Why would God select a wretched sinner like me for salvation before time even began? It certainly couldn't be because I was less sinful than other people. That's not it. Because Jesus himself says, uh, or rather the prophet Isaiah said, we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Well then, perhaps it was because of a decision I made. A choice I made to turn my life over to Jesus. Is that it? That couldn't be it either because our Lord himself said, you did not choose me but I chose you. And besides, as we've said, all of this choosing took place on God's part long before we were even born in eternity. Though Scripture mentions election frequently, the only qualifier that crops up, and it crops up again and again, is the phrase, in Christ. God chose you in Christ. That is the same gracious God who in his gracious goodwill led him to sacrifice his innocent son on the cross led him in eternity in Christ to select you to be his dear child our election too is all by the grace of God not at all having anything to do with us or our good works 
That's all we know. But what a gracious knowledge that is. How comforting to realize that all things, including our eternal election, depend not upon us, but upon our gracious and loving God. A word of warning. One writer put it well when he said, only in the wounds of Jesus is predestination truly understood and found and nowhere else. We wretched sinners should always be found sheltering in the wounds of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only safe place to be. We dare never rely on our own good works for righteousness. We dare never nurture pet sins and refuse to bring them in repentance to our Lord Jesus. Let no such person falsely comfort himself with the doctrine of election. Recall the chilling question that the writer of the Hebrews put, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let none of us ever allow the doctrine of election to make us feel secure in our sins and to keep us from repenting of our sins. That would be wrong. Rather, as God's adopted children, let us live our lives, quote, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. But as I mentioned, yours is a three-ring salvation, so let's move on to the work of God's Son as presented in verses 7 through 12 of our text. One thing that is made abundantly clear in that section is that it is God the Son who has redeemed you. Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, as I'm sure you know, means to buy back. In ancient times, a person, if he had enough wealth, could buy someone back by slavery, from slavery by offering the payment price to make him a free man. It's the perfect word to describe how Jesus paid the price of your sins and bought you back from eternal damnation and hell and bought you a place in heaven. As the Apostle Peter said, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And how does God bestow this redemption upon us? Does he do it in a grudging, miserly way, giving us just enough to get by on? A little bit at a time, never quite letting us completely off the hook for our sins? No. God is just the opposite. Paul says God bestows this redemption in Christ upon us according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us piles up these adjectives to show how rich God's mercy is to poor sinners like us. God is not stingy with his love. He is prodigal. He lavishes mercy upon us. Evangelist Haddon Robinson once observed, with the Lord, the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is unspeakable and the peace passes understanding. There is no grudging in God's goodness. He does not measure his goodness by drops like a drug, druggist filling a prescription. It comes in floods. Because when God bestows his grace on us in Christ, he doesn't do it with an eyedropper. He does it with a fire hose. 
What does that grace gain for us? Paul says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance? You ever get property from someone who has passed away? Someone you knew or were related to? There's such a thing, I suppose, as a, a small inheritance, but very often they're quite large, and frequently they come as a complete surprise, a very pleasant surprise in the majority of cases. Well, all of us here today have a loved one who has died, and it's the same person, Jesus Christ. And the inheritance that we will one day come into will be a very pleasant surprise indeed. In fact, I am more and more convinced that we haven't the least inkling of the wonderful bounty of blessings that God has in store for us when we see our Savior in person in heaven. Peter says that in Christ we are destined for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But remember, yours is a three-ring salvation, so we come finally to the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We're told about his work in verses 13 and 14 of our text. Specifically, Paul says that it is the Holy Spirit who has sealed you. He says, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In biblical times, a seal marked ownership. The word seal was used in various ways. It could refer to a wax seal on a deed or a document of possession or property. It could also mean the brand on an animal or the tattoo on a slave or a soldier. It was a sign to signify to whom a person or thing belonged. God has marked his ownership of you by sealing you with his Holy Spirit in your heart. And the work of the Holy Spirit to separate you out of the world and bring you into the sphere of Christ that work makes you a member of a distinct group, an elite group of believers. That's where you live. That's who you are now by God's grace. Not an unbeliever, but a Christian. And even that faith itself with the Holy Spirit works in your heart is a reason for you to rejoice even further. For in our text, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Yes, you and I are going to come into complete and full possession of our inheritance one day in heaven. But the whole thing belongs to us in Christ right now. Even now, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts that God has given us as the down payment on that glorious resurrection inheritance. You probably know what a Venn diagram is. Invented by British mathematician John Venn in 1881, the diagram illustrates how subsets of various groups intersect. If you had 
three rings, for instance, that stood for all the churches in Burley County and all the churches that are Lutheran and all the churches that are painted white. In the very center of that intersecting group of three rings would be St. Paul Lutheran Church. It's not a coincidence that the common Venn diagram looks a lot like one of our symbols for the Holy Trinity. And <clears throat> the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those three rings represent that. And at the very center of those three persons is your salvation. Does that make you feel select and special? It ought to. Yours truly is a three-ring salvation. For God the Father chose you, God the Son redeemed you, and God the Holy Spirit sealed you. May the Lord grant to each of us the grace to live our lives to his glory. Amen.